Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. I am Catherine Whitaker, and coming up for you, we have a fantastic interview with British tennis player, for, former British tennis player, current commentator for BT Sport, Eurosport and others, Joe Jory. It's really magnif- magnificent. Do stay with us for that one. But first, I must introduce you to David Law, my co-podcaster. David, how are you doing today? I'm absolutely fine, particularly after that uh, very nice introduction to the interview that I did. So, um, you know, now that you've bigged it up, I'll, uh, I'll just sit back and do nothing for the next hour. Yeah, I mean, that interview really is more about you than it is about Joe Jury. As magnificent as uh, Joe was, it's really, it's really the David Law show. I'm not saying anything else. You, you know, that's fine by me. Yeah, I totally agree. No, uh, actually, no, hold on a minute. Joe was brilliant and I was adequate. Bye. <laughs> uh, what's been going on in in the world of tennis, both professional and otherwise, this week, David? Tell us. Uh, lots, lots. So my my sort of interest in the sport uh, continues to grow now that I've rediscovered how good it is to play. Uh, I played again today with my with my kids, and uh, it was great. I lost, but that's fine. I'm just gradually building myself up to when we have our our rematch, and we have a location, we have a service. Uh, I actually ran a poll, which uh, you may be surprised to hear to, to find out which surface we should play our rematch on uh, those that weren't around a year and a half ago uh, subscribing to the tennis podcast which you can do on itunes which you can do on android whatever you like will not know that uh, you beat me 11-9 in a champions tiebreak at the royal albert hall and that was a painful loss well actually we... i'd like to interject here and say i actually think i initially beat you about 10-5 in the champions tiebreak and then you demanded that we we replay a point that was very clearly mine, but being the uh, benevolent person that I am and the and the confident that I could win a second time person that I am, you allowed me to win for a second time. Don't really remember any of that. But anyway, you did win 11-9, and uh, yeah, I tried every trick in the book, apart from aggro, which uh, I'm intending to, to bring to the fore uh, in our rematch. But anyway, uh, the... The overwhelming preference for our listeners was for us to meet on grass, which was music to my ears, because that is my surface, Catherine Whitaker. I'm an, an 80s product, well, 70s, actually. Uh, but anyway, I grew up watching Wimbledon, and uh, that is definitely my surface. So um, the question now is where we're going to play. And the good news is that uh, since listening to last week's show, we've already had two offers to play on grass. And uh, and one of them was the Queen's Club. And it actually had nothing to do with the fact that I run the media there. It was just somebody who listened to the show, who's, uh, who's very important there, who got in touch and has offered to let us use the Queen's Club for our rematch. So there we go, Catherine. I have a number of things to say in response to this. First of all, to the uh, to the benefactor who was offered a Queen's Club court. Thank you very much indeed. However, I haven't actually agreed to this rematch yet i'm yet to be convinced of what is in it for me i mean i've proven my prowess once and for all as far as i'm concerned i can't quite see what's in it for me and number two you might have played tennis today but i played tennis yesterday with my brother 
and uh, we were both scouted for the uh, Wokingham Tennis Club men's and ladies teams respectively. So uh, how's that for a bit of trash talk? So hold on, you've just contradicted yourself because clearly on one level you're quite scared to meet me again and then on the other you're trying to big up your chances. Which is it? Not scared, not scared at all, David. Just content in the knowledge that I already, that I am the better tennis player. Anyway, shall we move on? Uh, yeah, as long as that's an acceptance. <laughs> shall we move on to talk about people that have can actually play tennis a little bit? Uh, like Angelique Kerber, for example, and Laura Siegmund, the uh, lady that she beat in the all-German final of the WTA event in Stuttgart. You've been commentating on Stuttgart this week, David. It's been a really fantastic week of tennis, I think. So many storylines to talk about. Obviously, Angelique Kerber really well and truly backing up what she did in Australia now with a, a, a top-level win on the WTA Tour as well. And Laura Siegmund, what a story. It's just incredible, isn't it? It is. And uh, I think Angelique Kerber, been talking about it this week, is very much the Leicester City in the football world of uh, of tennis, as far as I'm concerned, because not only has she won a big tournament, she's backing it up and she keeps doing it. And last week was it was very interesting last week to to watch that tournament because she didn't actually start her her campaign there. I don't think until about Thursday because she was a top seed with a bye, and you could see how much was weighing on her. She was coming in there as the defending champion, the Australian Open champion. Suddenly, she'd gone from being a very popular player who was having great results to being the star, the the poster girl, the poster person of the tournament, the person that, that they were building the whole promotion of it around. And she would have arrived and had an enormous number of um, obligations before even playing tennis. And when she actually took to the court in her first match against Annika Beck, who is another player, incidentally, who is the first time I've really had a chance to watch her play. What a joy to watch she is. Just sort of floats around the court. Lovely timing, lovely movement. And she took the first set from Kerber, and you did wonder whether maybe it was just all a bit too much of a strain on Kerber, all this. And she fought her way through it. When she eventually got into the semis against Carlos Suarez Navarro, she was she was a different player. She played probably the, some of the best tennis I've ever seen from her. She was really aggressive and assertive uh, and won that straightforwardly. Um, but the final was a slow start against the other big story of the tournament, Laura Sigmund, who's 28 years of age, at a career high of 71, and she's been, frankly, working her way up through the minor leagues for the last decade. Just, I don't think anybody really ever expected her to, to necessarily be a top 100 player, let alone do what she's doing. And she just slammed back-to-back Simona Halep, and uh, she beat before that Anastasia Pavlichenkova, she beat Agnieszka Radvanska. She was just beating the very best players in the draw one after another with these sort of darting runs to the net playing drop shots she had a little bit of everything and I I loved commentating on that event actually because as well as the the good storylines with the players it's just one of those events that is packed every single day it's clearly a tournament that knows how to do it they invite all the the, the local schools and the clubs to adopt a player for the week and, and support. And they've got all the kids in the crowd with their posters and singing songs about a certain player, players that maybe wouldn't normally have a huge amount of support at a tournament. And it was just brilliant to see a properly run tournament with, with fantastic support from the fans, people that wanted to be there to support tennis. And, you know, anybody who's involved in that Stuttgart tournament deserves a, a real pat on the back. It was, it was a great week. Absolutely. I, I love that idea, the uh, the local school kids being invited to adopt a player. I think that's fabulous. I think it looked fantastic on the TV. It, it looked everything that you've just described, just a really well-run, well-supported tournament, a real celebration of women's tennis, which is wonderful. And yes, fantastic to see Angelique Kerber 
winning and properly backing up the Australian Open. She remains at number three in the world now, uh, but it's very, very close between her and Radvanska, who's at number two. And it's going to be such an interesting battle over the next two big events, Madrid and Rome, leading into Roland Garros to see who gets that second seeding at Roland Garros and to see who will be guaranteed not to meet Serena uh, necessarily until the final I think that's going to be very interesting and they both actually have very little to defend over the next uh, three weeks leading into Roland Garros so very interesting battle there Laura Siegman just to just to hammer home the point about what she achieved last week she came through qualifying she beat Halep she beat Vinci and she beat Radvanska without dropping a set she now moves into the top 50 and very interestingly because I mean the strength in depth of German women's tennis at the moment is extraordinary. Laura Siegmund was the eighth-ranked German woman. She's now leapfrogged four of those four of those German women in the top 100, and she's now the fourth-ranked German woman, which uh, is very crucial uh, in view of the Olympics coming up because each country uh, is provided the the players have a sufficiently high ranking can name four players uh, to play at the Olympics. So that could be extremely big for her. And just I'm just full of praise and uh, interest in her story, really. Well, she's it shows, not... Catherine, it does show that it's it, it it may not be too late for certain players who you, who you could easily write off because I don't think people saw this coming. I mean, she's been somebody I've been vaguely aware of for a number of years without ever really having seen play because she simply wasn't playing this level of tournaments. I I think she'd played three Grand Slam tournaments. She's 28 years of age. And yet here she was, as you say. I think she won 14 sets in a row over those seven matches to get to the final. And is just grasping it, grasping this opportunity. There was, there was one of those sort of um, slightly questionable moments where the the TV camera had panned down and seen um, a, a note, a handwritten note she'd written to herself with seven or eight different uh, most self motivational uh, lines on it. You know, things like keep your focus and all that sort of stuff. And but it does seem as though this is somebody who really knows where she's going she's she's actually coming towards the end of uh, of a degree she's studying uh, psychology she wants to be a social uh, sports psychologist when she uh, when she hangs up the racket so really does know where she's going both on and off the court absolutely uh, no serena in stuttgart of course or azarenka It'd be interesting to see uh, how these clay court events pan out when they are entered into the equation that's something to look forward to over the next few weeks serena david serena do you know what she's been doing instead of uh, playing tennis this week she's been appearing in a beyonce music video well not actually a music video actually she's calling it an hour long visual album sort of somewhere between uh, somewhere between a music video and a sort of feature film uh, called Lemonade, and uh, that's that's what she's been up to. You got anything to say about that, David? I, I don't really understand what you've just talked about for the last twenty seconds. Really, Lemonade? I mean, that, that's a drink, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, I think we'll move on. How do swiftly. you know about this stuff? The you have internet, to be under 40 David. Or something. The, the internet is this amazing new thing. You can do polls on it and everything. Anyway, uh, moving on to the very uh, worthy conversation topic uh, of now. I'm just going to brace myself for a moment here because there is some potentially some very dodgy pronunciation coming up. I promise this is my best effort. I've no doubt it's going to be wrong. But Kaila Buyukatshai, that's that's my best effort. Yeah, well, I think think you're bang on, Catherine, because I've just... uh asked twitter as you do in these situations uh how you pronounce it in fact um, what i'm getting here is charla Kachai. so anyway if anybody's got any corrections for us there we're, we're more than happy including you charla carla we'll get your name right absolutely soon uh do keep listening to the tennis podcast after you've won your title now uh but anyway what a huge achievement and imagine imagine that feeling and that's something that struck me watching Siegmund is that you've got somebody who's just rising in in stature before your very eyes because she's got that support some players wilt don't they but what, what an amazing achievement to go to Istanbul and lift her home title fantastic 
Absolutely amazing. First Turkish woman into a WTA final, first Turkish woman then obviously to win a WTA title, and she now goes into the the world's top 100. She's just amazing. Uh, moving on now, well, I should, well, there'll be plenty more WTA chat coming up later with uh, the aforementioned Joe Jury interview that uh, David secured for us earlier in the week, and it really is, uh, it's just so nice. She's just such a likeable a likeable lady and with so many interesting insights we hear from her so much in uh, in women's tennis don't we she does so much commentary work here in the UK at least and yet still David I'd hate to pay you the compliment here but uh, still I heard insights from her you, you gathered insights from her that I've I've never really heard before so do stick around for that but first of all we must talk about something that has only just happened it's sort of still just about breaking news uh, in the world of tennis, which is that Nadal has backed up his win in Monte Carlo with one in Barcelona, a ninth title in Barcelona. He's now the only player to win nine titles at a Grand Slam, a Masters 1000 and a 500 event. He's just amazing. It was the dream final for the organisers, Nadal versus Nishikori. Nishikori, obviously the two-time defending champion in Barcelona. And it was a good final. It was never a brilliant or electric final. Nishikori had chances though, didn't he? Did you not think so? That's interesting to me because I I was in one of those positions where I I couldn't watch it with the commentary on or with the sound on, which is quite an unusual way to to watch a a big tennis match like that. The the reason was I was actually watching watching MasterChef with my kids at the same time. So I was just sort of balancing my iPad uh, on the, on the, the, the sofa at the same time whilst watching that. But... I found it absolutely fascinating seeing a player probably, I would say, the closest in style to Djokovic, that's Nishikuri, taking on Nadal at this stage where we're, we're, we're in this curve, aren't we, of his comeback, where he's, he's incrementally and increasingly feeling like the Nadal of old. Certainly to me, big step taken last week in Monte Carlo. I think this is another huge step. I, I think he looked better still this week. It seems to me he's he's going for it more. There's more authority on his shots. He's he's not prepared to be bullied in the way that he was being last year. And, and the, the doubt has gone. The, the doubt in his own game. He, he's got that steel about him again because Nishikori, to me, threw the kitchen sink at him. He he did what you want Nishikori to do. I find Nishikori an enormously frustrating player because I love watching him so much. I want to see so much from him because it's there. And today I, I felt as though he fought and he threw it all and he gave Nadal his best. The difference between the two, one is is Nadal's resolve and two, his ability to play those big points uh, the the statistics will will be very interesting to have a look at. I think from that match because I think it was the first three service games for Nadal that Nishikori had break points in all of them, and he he couldn't take them. Now is that him messing it up or is that Nadal's resolve? I would say it's it's probably both of those, but but I'd give the benefit of the doubt more to Nadal. I just don't feel as though you've got this concern watching him if you're on if you're on his side you know if you're cheering against him perhaps you feel like the other way around but but for me as somebody who just wants to see him at his best whether he wins or loses or is beside the point just want to see him play the way you know he can and and that was more like it yeah i mean what what struck me most uh i mean it struck me in monte carlo last week it's been striking me for a while now and particularly struck me today is just i mean Nadal has said himself that that so much of uh, his woes over the past year and and now subsequently his his sort of emerging from those woes and getting back to somewhere close to where he was is about the mental side of the game the confidence the nerves the anxiety he used the word anxiety um I can't get enough of his uh, strongly accented Spanish pronunciation of the word anxiety, by the way. I think that was my favourite thing from last week's podcast. But yeah, I mean, he has talked himself so much about it all being the mental side of things. And we saw that today, as you say, the playing in the big points. That's purely mental, isn't it? But 
I also do believe that it it wasn't all mental. The struggles he's had over the past year, year and a half, there his there was less on his forehand. It, there were there were fewer revolutions on the tennis ball. That forehand was sitting up. You know, I do think that there was something in Aliash Badene's comments, his Greg Rosetsky moment that we discussed last week. I, d- I don't think he was just being a sore loser or whatever. I do think there was some technical substance to that. And yet, that seems to have been eliminated by the improvement on the mental side. That the 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 codependence, the the relationship between the mental and the technical sides of tennis. I mean, I can't begin to fathom the depths of and the complexity of that relationship. But it's just fascinating to witness because as Nadal's confidence improves, we see suddenly that there's more zip on his forehand. That he has the confidence, I guess, to to hit through it and maybe hit a bit. A bit flatter, you know. We talked about how how much flatter he hits in practice, and been frustrated about not seeing that on the match court. I mean, just the relationship between the mental, the physical, and the, the technical elements of the game. You're seeing it all in all its deep complexity in the form of Rafael Nadal, and I'm finding it so intriguing. I think the connection between the two is absolute, and. No question there was less on the forehand, but I, I agree with you. I think it was because of the mental block, the mental doubts that he'd got. I remember last year watching him at Queen's, and there were a couple of occasions against uh, Dog Gopolov when he's got a mid-court forehand, and he's, he's, he's kind of barely clearing the net with it because he just isn't striking it with the same conviction. And look sometimes you're out of touch but I would say that it's more a question of just doubts and I actually think you know he's been playing well for for a long time I I think it's slightly clouded by the fact that he ended up losing that Australian Open match which I think if he had come through against Vadasco he would probably have ended up having a really good run at the Australian Open I think that really frustrated him but I also think it convinced him even more that it is coming. It's going to come sooner or later. The, the the nuts and bolts of the game are back and he's feeling more like himself. And we're seeing that now. I mean, look, the last two years he hasn't won Barcelona. This is his ninth title. He's won nine Monte Carlo titles. He's won nine French Opens. I tell you, this is getting interesting now because the momentum that this is building will be felt throughout the locker room. People will remember what it used to be like trying to beat this guy when he was on a roll because it's happening again. Yeah, it is going to be. I mean, it's since since Novak Djokovic lost uh, very disappointingly for him to uh, Yuzhi Vesely. I mean, Nadal's won two titles in that space of time while Djokovic has been kicking his heels you know they've had a very different couple of weeks and I'm not saying uh, Djokovic is in any way losing touch with that winning feeling in the space of that those short two weeks but I mean the strides towards him that that Nadal has taken will be felt I believe by Djokovic at a time in the season where as much as he plays it down he is experiencing more anxiety than he experiences at any other time in the season. And that will continue to be the case until he wins that French Open title. So for me, it is, you're right. It is suddenly getting very, very interesting. And there's no question that back-to-back events is a big deal. It's going to be very interesting going into Madrid where, yes, it's still a clay court event. It's in Spain. You'll have all the support, just like Barcelona. But the conditions are very different, aren't they? It's at altitude. It's very much... It's a zippier court, isn't it? It's not necessarily exactly suited to Nadal, but he's won, he's won there plenty of times. No, I, I don't think he likes it that much, to be honest. I, I don't think he's a huge fan, in all honesty. I think people have got a better chance against him there than they have at the other two events that are going to be coming up and the ones that have just gone, no question. Absolutely, I'd agree with that. But he's going in there really high on confidence and uh, as the man himself said that seems to be the most crucial piece in the puzzle for him at the moment so yeah just exactly as you said things are just suddenly getting very 
very interesting. A uh, quick uh, mention of the uh, Bucharest final, which was due to be played today between Fernando Vidasco and Luca Puy of France. Uh, they've had an absolute nightmare over in Bucharest. I really feel for them. Complete washout on finals day. So uh, that final has been postponed until Monday. And it is Sunday as we're recording, so unfortunately we can't bring you the result of that. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's uh, there's the internet. So, uh, yeah, get on it. One of these days, one of these days you're going to have to show me how to use that thing. I think judging by your, your use of polling, David, I think, you're, I think you're managing. No, I'm all right on the app. I can do a Twitter app. Right. That's it. I don't know how to do anything God, who else. Who taught David how right. to use a Twitter app? That's that's who we've got to blame for all of this. Anyway, a few other uh, bits and bobs of uh, news, bits and bobs of intrigue from the last week of tennis. We've, of course, had the Tennis Integrity Unit reporting, as they do now, and, of course, given the raised profile of the issues of... Um, of betting in tennis, everyone's picking up on it and, and tracking these alerts eagerly. 40 betting alerts have been reported uh, from January to March of this year, almost exclusively at the lower level. One, they say, is a WTA tour level match. Um, it's up on the same period uh, for last year when it was 31 reports, but that that could well be down to the raised profile of this issue within the sport. I mean, people are, people have reported this. I'm not sure there's that much to make of it i don't think it's particularly more or less or i mean what do you make of it david i'm pleased about the spotlight on it personally and in terms of the way the tennis integrity unit has communicated these uh these raised awareness uh levels of these matches i, I think that that is a good thing for the sport and i think it's more likely to be dealt with and measures taken that, that will actually end up working and that it'll get I think it, I think players are, are less likely to end up doing anything now that they know that, that this is being talked about uh, personally I, I think it's a good thing yep I'd agree with that uh so moving on uh Davis Cup the quarterfinal uh between Great Britain the reigning champions and uh Serbia oh say that again the reigning champions David Great Britain, the reigning Davis Cup champions. Uh, that is going to be played. It has now been confirmed. I don't think it's any major surprise. It's going to be played on outdoor clay in Belgrade in July, shortly after Wimbledon. David, I'm putting you on the spot. Is Novak Djokovic going to play? I don't think so. Ooh. I don't think Novak Djokovic will play. Uh, and uh, I think that that is pretty much the telltale sign. I think what they would have done is if Novak Djokovic wanted to play, I think they would have put it on whatever he wanted it to be on. And I think he would have chosen something that would be easiest for him to go between from Wimbledon to the Olympics. Uh, And the fact that they put it on clay suggests to me that he's not going to play and therefore they're just going to make it as absolutely nightmarish for Andy Murray in particular to have to make that same transition, if he's going to play, to have to literally go from grass to clay to the Olympics. I think it helps uh, Serbia's chances in in a non-Novak Djokovic world. I think it helps them in the tie itself. I think it also helps uh, them, I mean, if you really want to be mean-spirited about it, to to give... um, Maybe Djokovic a better chance at Wimbledon. If Andy Murray is going to play, he's going to have to try and multitask, isn't he? He's going to have to be trying to think about both situations. You may remember the the the, the decision he had to take back in November as to whether he was going to play the O2. He was questioning whether he was going to play that, given that the the Davis Cup final was going to be on clay uh, the week after, and ultimately he played both. I personally think, and he has actually in his uh, in a press conference this week talking about uh, the the exhibition event that he's going to run, Andy Murray Live, which we'll have a chat about in a second. He did talk about how uh, I think he was asked, "Is this going to change your approach?" Because as we heard in the interview he did with you a few weeks ago, Catherine, he was basically saying, "I'm playing. I'm playing in that quarterfinal, no matter what. I mean, that is my plan is to play." And he was asked. Is this going to change your stance potentially? And he, and his answer was potentially. So he's put that doubt out there again. Personally, I think everything being equal, if he's not injured, I think he will play. 
I also think, and I would not put it beyond Andy Murray, because all of those quotes that he gave in that press conference have been reported as he's slightly shifted his stance and he may not play. I think Andy Murray is also aware that if he said that, that would be reported in that way. And, well, it's mind games, isn't it, between both sets of teams. That is what happens, that the Serbian team have put it on clay to try to discomfort the British team whilst not letting anybody know whether Djokovic is playing or not. And I think Andy Murray's just giving them that little bit of doubt himself because why, why wouldn't you? It's very interesting, isn't it? That especially you raising the fact that there's not there's not just the Davis Cup at play here. I mean, Djokovic, despite not playing in that tie, it being held on outdoor clay, assuming Andy Murray does play for Great Britain, I mean, that plays remarkably into Djokovic's hands. That is making Andy Murray physically uncomfortable at the most crucial part of the season. Uh, we've, we've talked before about how difficult it is for him to change surfaces. It almost, it, it's it's the Serbian Federation's opportunity not only to maximise their chances of winning that Davis Cup tie, but also to help Djokovic's chances, not that they particularly need much of a boost, but to help his chances of winning uh, the Olympics and potentially the US Open uh, a few weeks after that. It's 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 really interesting, all the various things yeah, that, are, that are at play. And as you say, David, I think you're absolutely right that that Andy Murray is aware of every single layer of, of that cake. And, and you know, I, I wouldn't, um, I don't have any inside knowledge here. I don't have any tip-off about Djokovic's intentions. It's just their selection of the surface. That is what my, what I'm adding it up to, to equal. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's very interesting speculation. I think you could well be right, but we will see. Uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, Andy Murray's announced uh, Andy Murray Live uh, in Glasgow. No, it is not a stand-up comedy show. It is uh, a tennis exhibition be to be held at the Glasgow uh, Hydro. Really big stadium, the Hydro, and I'm quite sure he will pack it out. Could probably do so several times over. September 21st, uh, he's got Gail Morfis confirmed to play him in the singles, and then they'll team up or not team up, they'll play uh, Jamie and Henman and Monfils in, in the doubles, charities to benefit a UNICEF and uh, Young People's Futures. It's just a wonderful thing. Well done, Andy Murray. He really cares about these charities. It's it's He's got a lot on his plate, does Andy Murray, and to uh, to take on this, this extra thing is, is greatly to his credit, and he's not somebody that'll just put his name to something, rock up on the day hit a few tennis balls and wave to the crowd, I'm quite sure that he will be taking quite an active role um, in the organisation of this. And uh, I've no doubt that it'll be a great success. And good on, uh, obviously, Jamie Murray and Tim Henman, but good on particularly Gail Morfis, I think. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court shows in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Because these guys, they don't take any appearance fees, anything to to appear in these charity matches. That is him helping out 
a friend, you know, helping out a charity and good on him. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think it, it reflects pretty well on this generation of players because I think they're all good at this stuff. They all understand there's a bit more to the tennis world and, and, and life in general than just going to tournaments, winning them and getting loads of money for yourself. They're, they have a standing in the game and in the world that can be a force for good. And when you look at the number of things that Djokovic and Federer and Nadal and, and all these top players and, and Serena Williams, all, all, all the top players are, are, it would appear, mindful of that. And, and actually all of them doing something. So good for them. Good for them indeed, and good for Roger Federer, who this is a this is the last item on our agenda for today, David. And I just love it. He has had a second road named after him in Switzerland. It's been imaginatively called the same thing as the first uh, street or road that was named after him, which is Allee Roger Federer, uh, which um, translated means avenue or alley, Roger Federer alley, pretty much. Uh, this one's in Beale. The first one uh, was in Basel. Can you think of any greater honour than having a street named after you, David, or let alone two streets named after you? I mean, it's no golden post box, is it? No, but it is pretty cool. But I still think giving him a cow was the best. And I, rem- I was Where's there. Where's that cow the- now? I was, the- well... On on the Roger Federer estate somewhere grazing. Well, you know that's that's a nice romantic view, Catherine. (laughs) But I mean, this we're talking twelve, thirteen years ago. You know, I'm not sure that cow's. If you can hear if you can hear typing, it's me googling the words cow life expectancy while you carry on with your cow story, David. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I I was there the day that uh, Juliet. The cow was brought onto the court. How has this not been in, mentioned uh, before in, now? You were there. In the Gestalt, yeah. Oh, my goodness, this cow. I, I've never seen a cow like that before. This was the biggest cow you've ever seen in your whole life. Filled the entirety of the centre court in Gestad. And the look on ponytailed Roger Federer's face uh, a week or so after he'd won Wimbledon was, was a picture. I actually remember the tournament director. I arrived at the tournament and... Uh, and freshly from Wimbledon where he just won his first Grand Slam title and I said you know have you got any special plans for for what you're going to do for Roger you know coming back as the as the 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 sort of hero the 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 hometown hero he said yeah we're we're going to give him a cow I've got a very and I just I I remember that the the I'm thinking who who has come up with that you know, that is a cracking idea. And, and Roger loved it. I mean, this is the biggest cow you've ever seen in your life. This is the Evo Karlovich of cows. And uh, then the, the year after, when he defended his title, they gave him one of those massive horns, Swiss horns, and uh, and brought that onto the court. I mean, this thing was, was stretching across sideline to sideline. It was that long. And uh, and Federer was, was tasked with trying to play it on the court in front of, uh, what, Eight six thousand people, uh, so he, he didn't do the best job of that. But uh, yeah, so he's he's had a few uh, uh, mini honours like that in his time in Switzerland, in particular. But actually, Beale is it was it was at the town where this um, this road is. It been. was yeah. Federer attended the ribbon cutting ceremony. Can, can I do some more name dropping? You can, but first, can I just ask one very crucial on. question? I feel sorry for Joe Jury first and foremost that she's being held up by discussion of cows but uh how old was juliet at the time of the gifting because uh the internet informs me that cow life expectancy is 15 years i tell you what should we just so, say she was one so that she's st- she's right. a gray-haired cow now doing a knitting on some swiss hillside at the moment just merrily knocking along with her ipad out watching roger federer her owner just you know mopping up all these Grand Slam titles. Okay, fine. You haven't particularly alleviated my anxiety about the fate of Juliet. But anyway, do some name dropping. Uh, okay. Uh, Beale is the, uh, I think it's the, 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 the town in Switzerland where they have their national tennis centre. And uh, it's where... It is. It's the road on which the national tennis centre is. That is now called 
Ali, Roger oh, right. Well, that's where I, I that's where confirm. I was able to journey. Um, how long ago are we going back now? Crikey. Uh, 15 years. 15 years. And it was actually the week after um, 9-11. I remember it was just a few days after that, uh, that tragedy took place. And, and it was the first plane ride I, I took straight after that. Um, and it was to go to, to Switzerland to interview Roger Federer for a magazine that the ATP produced back at the time. And uh, it was it was an opportunity to 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 meet him, and I knew him pretty well from the from the tour as a communications manager at the ATP at the time. But even back then, people like Pierre Paganini, who's still his fitness trainer even today, fifteen years ago, he he was the, his fitness trainer at that stage. Also met up with um, with his late coach Peter Carter, who was a was a wonderful guy somebody who who really guided Roger in in his very early years uh, on the tour and and helped him to grow up frankly i mean i think federer was absolutely devastated when when he died a couple of years later um and uh, this sounds terrible I got to hit a few balls with Roger Federer. Um, what we decided to do as part of the uh, the magazine feature is is try to work out what it would be like to to face a shot that he liked to hit called the Roger Federer cliffhanger. That was something he'd named his forehand because of the the ridiculous level of topspin that he could put on it, such that it would seem as though it was dropping off a cliff face cliff face when it uh, when it went in full flight. And uh, yeah, so I. I, I hit a few balls with Federer, and um, yeah, he's a bit better than you. I can definitely say that. Right, should we have Joe Jury? Um, Joe Jury uh, is our guest on this week's podcast. David Lord, the uh, magnificent tennis player that he is, uh, caught up with Joe this week, and uh, here she is. So we're very lucky here on the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph, because we have a very special guest with us this week. I'm currently in a very windowless, small commentary box at BT Sport, where I've had the pleasure of Joe Jury's company for the last few days, commentating on the WTA tennis matches in Stuttgart. Joe and I are currently waiting to go and commentate on one of the matches, but Joe has very kindly agreed to spend me a few minutes to talk to us on the tennis podcast because we've got lots to ask a former world number five and a grand slam semi-finalist it's not every day we get chance to meet a a british person who uh, qualifies as those descriptions and joe it's it's lovely to see you you've you've been in the news a bit lately because of joe conter's uh, runs and everybody thinking now how long is it somebody reached a a semi-final of a grand slam on the on the women's side and and that was you lovely to see you Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was me. It's, you know, going on 30 years, isn't it? Which is a very long time to wait for anybody um, to do that kind of thing again. Because, of course, I followed, you know, Ann Jones, Virginia Wade, Sue Barker, all won Grand Slams. And then I came along after that. Yes, semi-finals. Um, and after that, there was kind of, you know, it tailed off a bit. So it's been great watching Joe Conte. It really has. That sounds like you're you're not doing yourself enough credit there in a way. I know that's a very British thing. We don't like to give ourselves too much credit. But yes, you're right. You you followed those three great champions from Great Britain. But do you think that that in a way gave you more pressure back in the day that 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 you would were you compared did you feel to them very much I was compared yes and uh, you know when I didn't quite deliver um, you know semi-final of Paris you know, on clay me on clay I was unbelievable at the time I beat Tracy Austin in the quarterfinal and I was setting a break up against Mima Jozovic in the semi-final lost in three uh, it was a really good match obviously Mima was fantastic on clay uh, funnily enough, I played a couple of weeks later in Eastbourne, first round, can you believe it? And I beat her on grass, my surface. But, uh, yeah, it was hard because people expected you, you know, to do very well. And I followed, you know, this great line of uh, women champions from Great Britain who did well. Um, not only those three I've mentioned, uh, you know, others that, that did it too. So almost I got uh, really quite a lot of stick at, at the time for not quite, you know, doing what everyone thought should be the next in line you know, I should be doing. So I was very lucky with uh, Alan Jones, my family, and everyone who, 
you know, very sensible and um, feet on the ground and, you know, in the sort of dark times when I thought I wasn't worthy almost, they they were brilliant and saying, don't be so ridiculous. You're, you know, don't, trying your hardest. That's all you can ask. You're trying to improve all the time. So, uh, you know, I had all these things and looking back, you know, it's, it's astonishing really. I thought, did I do that at the time? It's fantastic. It's It's nice that you're now looking back on it and you clearly do appreciate what you achieved back then. But... I remember talking to Tim Hemman about this and I've heard him a number of times say that when he was at the height of his career and he would have had the same mm. kind of things said about himself that he just didn't read the newspapers. Fish and chip paper, he would say. Yeah. What What was your approach? Mm. Did it get to you? Yeah, obviously, I, I, I was protected by by Alan Jones and, and my family. They And I tried not to read the papers, but things seep through. You know, you can't actually not... Um, be aware of, of everything that, that goes on out there. Um, look, I had a, a fantastic time. I love tennis. I, you know, I'm passionate about it. I love commentating and I still coach and play and tennis has been my life and it's given me so much that I'm very thankful for everything. And, and you know, at the time I earned really good money. In fact, you know, I'm rather pleased I did it in the era that I did because I did start with wooden rackets white tennis balls you didn't sit down at changeovers and at the end of my career it was all going into you know you were surrounded by entourages of coaches and physios and this I I traveled without a coach to start with like everybody else we didn't have the money we traveled in a group of us Um, we got on with it we played silly games in the changing rooms I've played Pictionary with Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova and Pam Shriver who won? Um, well, I don't think we finished the game. It got a little competitive. <laughs> can you, you surprise me? Can you imagine? But times were very different then. And I, honestly, I'm very thankful that I played in the era that I did. You mentioned that 1983 French Open semi-final and the run you had. It wasn't your surface. It Again, to, to use a Tim Hemmen tangent, it reminds me of when he had his run to the semis of the French in 2004. And Arguably, that's the closest he ever came to to reaching a Grand Slam final. It's the closest you came. That that fortnight, did you did you know something was going on that 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 you were in great form and that there was was a chance? I all I knew is I'd been playing um, very well uh, throughout the year, and I knew that all the hard work I put in, I, I had started to improve. And things were coming together in matches. I was feeling more confident. And, and then suddenly you, you get on a roll. And I've been playing quite well in, in the clay courts leading up to the French. Uh, you know, I did have a good slice backhand. And, uh, you know, I, I could still come to the net on a clay court. You just adjust your game to clay. So going in, you know, quite honestly, I, I didn't think I was going to do great at Roland Garros. I was really looking forward to the grass afterwards. But... You know, one thing led to another. I had some good wins against Cathy Rinaldi. Um, when I played Pan Shriver, um, she slightly twisted her ankle. She retired after I won the first set. Um, you know, just it's just one thing, it kind of on it went. And suddenly there I am playing Tracy Austin on, on the centre court and winning. And, you know, I'd worked out with my coach, Alan, beforehand to slice everything to Tracy's forehand, even my forehand to her forehand, slice it, not hit it. And in the end, her forehand just completely broke down to my astonishment. I thought, my gosh, his tactics worked. Um, beat her in three sets. And then Oh, the the media and you know radio, TV, and um, and I was speaking to Jerry Williams and uh, got my family on the on the line. I was doing some radio with him. I was speaking to my mum and dad on the radio. It was just <laughs> this is crazy. What's going on? And then they were all going, "Oh, we're going to fly over if you get to the final." And I'm like, "Whoa, this is a bit different." <laughs> But, uh, you know, I played, I thought I played pretty good semi-final and, um, you know, fought to the end. And then really it just, it just kept going for the rest of the year. I mean, I got to, you know, semi-final of the US Open as well. I played Chris Ebert there. I lost in two quite close sets and I was, it was just amazing. You're on court in the French Open semi-finals. You've taken the first set. Does it go through your mind? Does it, do you think, (laughs) what would it be like in the final? Yes, unfortunately, it does go through. Well, it did go through my mind, and uh, and especially I think when I went break up, you suddenly like, whoa, this could really happen. And then 
you just you think about the end product and not the process of getting there. Uh, and you know, I was still relatively young and a little naive about these things, and I, I kind of let that get to me in the next few games. But but then it co- kind of got evened up again. And as I said, Mima Jozevic was a brilliant player on on clay, and in the end, she carved me up. She was so clever, and I kind of ran out of steam as well, emotional as as really more than physical. I think everything just caught up with me, but uh, I really enjoyed it. You mentioned that the grass was your service and you got your revenge a couple of weeks later in Eastbourne. Nice. Um, But at Wimbledon, you know, to look at your record, Mm. relatively speaking, two semifinals in the other slams, quarters was your best at Wimbledon. Why was that? Interesting. Um, I think... I love playing at Wimbledon, and that centre court is so special. It's the most special place in tennis, as far as I'm concerned. So there were times when the pressure just got to me that little bit more. Uh, the year I got to the quarterfinal, I had a terrible bad back, and I, could, I couldn't sit down. Uh, I was having treatment every day on it. When I got in a car to go home, I had to lie on the back seat. Um, I didn't let anyone know this, and so... I think maybe in a way that took some pressure off because I had a bad back. So I played quite well. But I played um, Hannah, of course, in the quarterfinal. We'd grown up in juniors. I played, uh, I don't know how many times she won and I won. You know, it was quite even. But uh, I just I didn't quite have the flexibility in that match. And she played very well and was really a little bit too good. But um, yeah, it was a... I was just pleased I got through the two weeks with my back, quite honestly. Well, you certainly didn't stop there, as you said. You went off to the US Open. You ended up in the, the semifinals there. Obviously, that is a hugely different tournament, isn't it, in terms of the, the atmosphere. And, and I imagine the feel being out there. The, I mean, it is just a bonkers place, yeah. isn't it? It is. It's noisy. It's hot. It's a horrible journey in from the city into the tennis and back again and it's tiring and I have to say my least favourite Grand Slam but you know if you do well there you've really worked hard because of all these things that go on um, I remember I got to well I won Marwa uh, the tournament the week before singles and doubles and it rained uh, after I won the singles it rained we had to go indoors to play the doubles final um, we won it. I was playing Sharon Walsh. I didn't get into New York until, I don't know, the early hours of Monday mornings. So we got lost as well in the car coming in. I was absolutely shattered and I had to play Ross Fairbanks first round and I always had really difficult matches against her. I was, I, I was so tired and I was just kind of on automatic that I actually won quite easily. But by the time I got to the second match, I was so tired. I started crying in the middle of the match when I was winning. I mean, I was just, I didn't know what I was doing. I was going around kind of sobbing on the court. I thought, oh my gosh, Joe, pull yourself together. But the emotional toil of it all. And I somehow got through the match and afterwards... Um, my opponent says, well, you know, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know, really. She said, you've beaten me. I said, I know, but I'm so tired. I just I, I just can't think. I you know, can hardly walk. And anyway, I just I got over that. I had an a absolute a, a day off. And uh, Alan said, right, we're getting out of here. We're, we're going. Had some good friends in New Jersey who, who got a swimming pool. And so we just went out, had a day off completely. And that really recharged me. And then just on I went again and suddenly found myself. I hadn't played on centre court before that semi-final. And I practised the day before on it. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful, isn't it? You know, lovely centre court. No one in it. I go out the next day. When I walk onto court, there's 25,000 people out there. And that was really shocking, actually. It's bigger than Wimbledon. And I didn't know where Alan was sitting. And I just needed someone to concentrate on to get my concentration I couldn't find him in the crowd didn't know where he was sitting I hadn't thought about player box or anything but I didn't find him until just before the match started and then as soon as I I saw him just to you know eye contact I was fine lost my nerves I loved that match against Chris I, you know after it finished and we were shaking hands at net, I said can we play another set this is so fantastic <laughs> what what is it like I mean we'll talk about Chris in a minute because I know she was somebody who caused you nightmares on a tennis court in terms of the the obstacles she put up for you but in terms of the experience of playing Chris Evert in New York what is that like well I mean crowd obviously loved Chrissy and uh, the thing I'm proud of is that 
you know the match against Chrissy was was good tennis and you know the crowd I think appreciated that and so they were ch- you know cheering for me as well as for Chrissy and, and I, was, I was really proud of myself for that but I hated playing Chrissy I never won a set off her ever and she was one of those players she was absolutely did my head in because she she didn't give you anything she was much faster than she looked she knew where you were hitting the ball and her concentration was just spot on all the time I was lucky enough, I played doubles with Chrissy for a few months and I learned so much from her, just hitting with her, her focus, um, determination and the way she went about her tennis was so professional. I learned, I was unbelievable, I was very, very lucky. You didn't think about just accidentally shanking a server <laughs> to the back of the head then? <laughs> oh my goodness, that death glare of Chrissy's, I would dissolved on the spot. Uh Joe, we've we've had a, a a load of questions come in for you uh, at Tennis Podcast on Twitter. The moment I said that you were a guest on the show, everybody wanted to to ask uh, you a question. Uh, we have uh, Barry Clark here, who says, "I mean, you mentioned you do some coaching, but would you ever like to be a, a full time coach on the WTA circuit?" And, and we're, we're watching the matches here and seeing the on court interactions these days. Is that ever something you'd like to do? You know, I did. Um, I travelled a bit with Lena Baltacher, um, and and that was brilliant. I mean, Bally is such a, a a nice girl. She really was. So that was enjoyable. The trouble is, you know, I I started playing when I, on the circuit really when I was fifteen, and I didn't retire till I was thirty five. And that's a long time to travel. Um, you know, six or more months of the year, and I really don't want to do that again. And I think like a lot of you know the coaches, uh, players who've been very good. They they come in and out, and that's fine. I mean, I'm coaching some youngsters. If if one of them, you know, was good enough to do start on the tour, I would go here and there, but not full time. I just couldn't handle it. It is a big commitment, isn't it? And uh, I've seen that from players before. The last thing they want to do is yeah. is travel again. Yeah, it's just too much and. Uh, you know, it's exciting to the players I'm working with, JTC, at the moment. It, it's exciting. I love it. As I said, I'm passionate about tennis. And it's wonderful to see them improve and uh, their enthusiasm, you know, keeps me going. Alex says, what do you feel was your greatest moment of your career? The one that that you, you sit back and think, I did that. Uh, goodness. Uh, you know, people have asked me this many times, actually, and uh, I... It's hard to come up with one because uh, I think beating Tracy Austin at uh, Roland Garros, but winning the mixed with Jeremy at Wimbledon, I've never been so nervous in my whole life on that last point. And Darren Cahill, I knew he was going to smack it at me. And I just closed my eyes, really, and put my racket in the way, and somehow we won the point. But, uh, that was fabulous. Um, you know, there's there's a few. Uh, that's It's hard hard to choose that's a lovely one i was going to ask you about uh jeremy was he a good doubles partner i mean or did you basically do all the work or <laughs> i think jeremy did a lot of the work we had such fun play i've known jeremy for a long long time and uh it was nice playing mix because we had a bit of fun and talked about other things not always tennis on the court but you know i i think great respect for each other and we enjoyed when, when we played with each other. That's half the battle, isn't it? Rui wants to know, what do you regard as the best city in the world to play tennis in? Wow. Well, besides the centre court at Wimbledon. Um, I, I like Australia, actually. They're a sports-mad nation, and they know and appreciate their sport. So I, I used to really love playing in Melbourne. We've also got uh, GSM, who wants to know about Martina and Chrissy, what they were like, and and I mean, if you think of their rivalry, we talk about rivalries. Yeah. There, has there ever been a rivalry like theirs? No. no, theirs was the best ever. The amount of times they played each other in big events, not Grand Slams and the bigger tournaments, they played week after week against each other. It was absolutely amazing. Um, as I said, I played doubles with Chrissy. I can tell you, she's got a wicked sense of humour. And uh, she usually swears as well. <laughs> she don't think of her like that because she looks very prim and proper on the court. Uh, and Martina, I think, uh, always searching for ways to be better. Any any tiny thing that she can do to be better, she would. 
they uh, I, I spoke to Martina on on this show a, a year ago and 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 asked her about the relationship she had with Chris Everett because whenever I see them together now there is such affection there is such a mutual appreciation society going on there between those two but it can't always have been like that can it no it wasn't I can assure you being in the locker room with the pair of them talk about Frosty and you know they they never wanted to give an inch it's quite right when they were trying to do what they were trying to do um so they were pretty ferocious in the way they went about things with each other but I think the respect was there always the respect of trying to battle each other uh and that's what I always was you know I looked in awe sometimes at the pair of them how they wouldn't speak they then they go and play a tennis match and come back in and then you know they they would be going well played to each other and the other thing GSM wanted to know is, given that they were around at the same time, I mean, they inevitably took Grand Slam titles off each other. Mm. And without each other, they would probably have won many, many more. But where would you put them in the, the pantheon of all-time greats? Would you put them ahead of Serena? Who, who's the greatest for you? Uh, for me, Steffi's the greatest. And you had a winning record against her. Uh, <laughs> I know, I did. I'm very proud of that as well. Um I think Steffi, Martina, Chrissy, Serena, I mean, it's hard to choose from those four, but I do think that Martina and Chrissy, with this rivalry, which went over many years, and the amount of times they played each other, I, I think was just absolutely fantastic. So what was the key against Steffi? Funnily enough, because I played her, uh, obviously, when she, I think when she was 15, first of all, uh, actually was lucky enough again to play doubles with Steffi for a little while. So I did know her. I was quite friendly with Steffi. She didn't scare me in the fact that I had a sliced backhand and I, I also used to hit quite hard across to her forehand. And I don't know, we just matched up quite well um, for some reason. It was fine until the last time I played her and she beat me like two and one in under an hour, I think it was. And then after that, I didn't play her anymore. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, the record was there. Just to, the way Tim Hemmen had a winning record against Federer for a while. Um, the The sport today is... I imagine about to go through its own transition because Serena Williams can't go on forever and uh, she's won all these Grand Slam titles. Who do you think is the the the, the next one for you? Who is is the one that stands out of this this crop of of contenders and also then there's a, obviously a batch of of much much younger players as well. Who who are you excited about? Um yeah, I mean it's it's interesting isn't it with Serena. I think Azarenka at the moment is coming back very strongly. I can see her winning more Grand Slams um, and being consistently good. Um, her attitude, I think she's got it back, her health and everything. Um, obviously, Muguruza, uh, she can sort of get it together mentally again, is is a real threat. Um, Hallett, uh, I think, should be better, but I think she puts too much pressure on herself sometimes. But there is, you know, a lovely batch of 18, 19 year olds at the moment. I mean, last year in particular, Belinda Bencic, I think she's good to watch. She's something different. But uh, Kazatkina, um, you know, there's a few out there that uh, I, I think will will step forward. And I think they are now. And I think there's an interesting mix of players, which I really like. There is. And we can't let you go without you asking you about Joe Conter because uh, she is the person that has has been talked about so much certainly on our side of the uh, the Atlantic over the last few months where do you think she's going to be ending up at the end of this year the way things are going mm. I she's good to watch isn't she because she consistently puts in performances um, she's improved herself and her tennis I think at the moment she's ranked, what, 21. So, you know, breaking that top 20 barrier is on the horizon. I think she will. Um, she's got until Wimbledon. I think she'll be good on the grass. I think uh, then she's got to defend. And that's when we'll see. Because um, she's been sort of so composed about everything. She doesn't get too excited. She doesn't run away with things. It's just week after week, the same thing. Now, when you come back again and you think, right, I've got these points to defend, you obviously try not to think of that. It's just, you know, literally one match at a time, all that. But it's going to be interesting, the end of the year, trying to predict where Joe's going to finish up. Because I think by Wimbledon, 
she might be somewhere like 15 in the world, I reckon. And then we'll see till the end of the year. Well, with your hindsight hat on now, because you obviously had the experience of, of having gone through it, through Wimbledon yourself as a player, and then seeing it in the years since, what would be your advice for her going into that, knowing that there will be eyes on her now? I think she's probably already done a whole load of uh, stuff for Wimbledon with uh, interviews, papers, you know, you name it. She's probably been doing a lot of that. So that heightens everything even before you step on the court at Wimbledon. So, I mean, she's got to just say to herself, I deserve to be here. I've worked hard for this moment. So let's, you know, get on with it, but try and enjoy it. And maybe looking back, you know, I could have enjoyed it a bit more, but you're so caught up in the moment that uh, it, it flies past very, very quickly. So enjoy it. It's easy to say, not so easy to do, but uh, clearly Jo Jury has enjoyed her tennis career. She's quite right. She bounces into VT Sport and, and does commentary with us and, and clearly loves every minute of it. And it's, uh, it's great for us, Joe, to have had you with us here on the Tennis Podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.